Hey everybody, welcome back to The Followers. So it's episode, I have no idea what episode it is, but we had a very good guest on today. It was thoroughly entertaining. We were talking to Amy McGuire and it's actually been a while since we've had a nutritionist on. So I think I speak for all three of us and it was good to, good to nerd out about nutrition again. But yeah, John, it was a really entertaining episode, but what, what, what got really stuck in your mind or what stuck out with you? Yeah, really entertaining. I particularly like the way at the end when we started doing some um, rapid fire questions and stuff, Amy gave the rapid fire answer, but then gave a nice bit of context to back it up. Um, also really interesting to hear how many, I suppose, how many plates she has been at the minute, but seems to keep them all going really well. Damien, what was your favourite part? Uh, just loving her um, approach uh, through, I suppose, a strength and conditioning course into, um, I guess, uh, just highlighting the importance of, I, I suppose, the role or the, the amount of information that uh, students are learning from a nutrition perspective and just the, the clarity in around that, that, you know, you're doing a strength and conditioning course with a, a few modules on, um, I guess, on, on nutrition to give you a basis on it and not you know coming out of college kind of thinking the exact opposite that too and uh, her insights into i suppose uh the construction industry that she's currently experiencing as well that was really there was a lot of insights there for us too <laughs> yeah i think everyone will be really pleased to hear that amy takes very much a practical and how to live real life approach to eating is in no way restrictive but just make sure you are enjoying your food Thankfully, Amy, with the last two weeks of Easter holidays, you've been putting it to use with planning this extension and stuff and branching out of the world of nutrition and more into the world of construction. Yeah, hard hat at the ready, lads, all the time. You know, <laughs> I know step by step now, measurements of windows, um, laying foundations, block laying, <laughs> you name it, now I have it. Um, but yeah, no, nice little distraction at the moment. I'm, uh, I'll be glad to see the end of it. But yeah, no, it's a nice, nice thing to look forward to. You've been busy enough over the last while with lecturing LIT, doing your own PhD research, working with a few teams and everything as well. Would you mind giving us just a little bit of background as to how you ended up where you are um, with all of it even? Yeah, so look, um, I suppose my, my full-time job is a lecturer. And I think I was, if I'm being honest, I was probably the best of a bad bunch um, going for that particular interview because I didn't think in a month of Sundays I was going to get the job lecturing up in, up in Carlo, but got it and I think I started lecturing in 2015 and I was like I was traveling three hours a day which you know took its toll so then when a job came up in LIT I applied for that and I was kind of nearly offered that on the day which again was a bit of a shock um I think I had imposter syndrome for about a decade so I um got that it was a lot closer to home it was based in Thurlis so and I was actually renting in Thurlis at the time so it really really suited um, and then when I started working in LIT, I got a lot of, um, I suppose, field work. And I got, uh, th- like, the office that I work in, nearly everybody's involved with teams as well, which wasn't really as common when I was lecturing up in Carlo. Plus, I wouldn't have had the time with the commute. So uh, through various different people that I worked with in LIT, I got some workshops, did a bit with teams. And then I started working with the under 20s for a tip for the football and I was working with David for a couple of years, maybe two years. And then he got the call then for the senior team with the lads. And he rang me the day of the hurlers homecoming and asked would I be interested in uh, taking up the role with the senior footballers. And I'll be honest, lads, I probably would have died for the county that day. So <laughs> I agreed. And um, I'll be honest, at first I was like, I'm after biting off way too much here. Uh, Full time lecturing gig was trying to do my PhD as well. Myself and my husband then were also kind of running a personal training studio with classes and but to be honest with you it just all fell into place and I worked with a really really good bunch. My boss in LIT is really really supportive of us doing you know external work. She really sees the value in bringing the practical side of things you know in, into our teaching. Um, I got some really really good interns to work with me. I was able to give them work experience um so yeah there's been times when I have been brutal at work-life balance but um COVID has definitely taught me to slow down a little bit and I'm uh I'm kind of enjoying it now and um we we closed the personal training studio that was just something with COVID that we just couldn't keep going um my husband's involved with, with GA as well so and he's doing his PhD as well 
So we kind of both decided, you know what, this is the direction we're going to go in. So when we let, when we kind of let go of that, um, we were kind of able to probably take on a little bit more. I took on Waterford GA then as well. Um, so I suppose that's kind of, that's how I got to where I am. And it's just a fantastic thing that you can have a full-time job that you don't see as a job. Like it's, it's brilliant teaching people all the time. There's hard parts as well. Like I'm not going to let on it's glamorous every single day, but it's very rewarding. And then you get to work with like elite athletes, you know, the, the, some of the, the counties or the countries, even best athletes, like it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And look, as I said, it's not all glamour. Like, I mean, you're doing urine testing there on a Sunday morning. Like, I mean, there's no, there's no shiny way of looking at that. But at the same time, you know, it's all part of the job. And that department in LIT, like you've who, Damien Young, Saoirse Bulf and Michael Fenley all there as well. So there's a lot of people like with, with experience in the field or in the trenches coming back in to lecture then as well. Yeah. And like, it's great as well, because at certain times of the year, we're all in the same boat, you know, so like we're all in the middle of preseason or, you know, we're all in a little bit of an off season and we're all into research as well. I think Michael's just about finished his PhD. Um, Damien finished his like, and like they're both they're also really inspirational people as well like Damien Young is one of the hardest workers I have ever met in my life like he's just complete career goals um like he did he did his PhD in three years and he's also a full-time lecturer and analyst with tip and coach with drum and inch and like you know so when you have those kind of people working beside you it's contagious so you're kind of like 24 hours in the day I'll work for 20 no problem So, yeah, no, it's great. LIT is a super place to, to grow and nurture your external abilities, let's just say. And you were in Carlo for a while before that, you said, was it? Yeah, two years, yeah. Academically, how did you end up there? Like, what, what was your, like, I suppose, college route to get into those roles? Yeah, um, so I suppose nowadays it's probably a little bit more direct where you can do a master's in sport and exercise nutrition or you can even do an undergrad now in it. Whereas back, I won't say how long ago, but back then... Um, it wasn't as direct so I did exercise and health science in Waterford and then from there then I knew I wanted to get into lecturing I just I actually googled it like I hadn't a clue how you became a lecturer because there was just so many different ways that I asked my lecturers and they had all different routes and avenues that they took so I was like right I have to do a master's but at that time so like I think that was 2010 when I complete when I finished my undergrad it was 2010 and I was like, right, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the masters weren't really something that interested me. So I waited a year and I was or maybe two years, I think. And I applied for a new master's in UL, which was in sports performance. And it's still going strong. Um, but I didn't get it the first time round. And like it was something I was probably nearly embarrassed to admit up until a couple of years ago. Um, but like I didn't get it the first time round and I got it then the second time round. So... I, I worked hard at it and I actually did my internship over in South Africa, which was a great thing to add to the CV. Um, and then I came back and I worked uh, as a manager in, or duty manager in a leisure centre for a little while. And I ended up, I, I knew I kind of had to get in teaching somewhere. So I actually worked for ETB, which is kind of like FOSS. And I worked with people who were on the live register you know so people at the time it was like the recession and if you didn't if you weren't you know actively looking for work you had to do a course if you wanted to you know get receive your money every week or whatever that was that oh my god that was hard that was hard like you know people were there they didn't want to be there and um I think actually to be honest with you because of my experience with managing difficult people um that was what stood to me getting the the job in Carlo because um, I, I had a master's but I was I had no teaching experience and I had no research done I had I wasn't even started on my PhD at that time um, so that's that's kind of the route I took and when I actually started working in Carlo then I took on uh, my postgraduate diploma in sports nutrition so it wasn't actually until I started lecturing that I said you know what I'm going to go back and do uh, a little bit more um, and, and become specialized in nutrition. Where did you do that through the is that the ISSN one or? or yeah. Is that so, yeah, I did the, the one, ISSN. Yeah. Yeah. So I started that. I think I started that in 2000 and, it was 2016. I did that. But the ISSN exam is one of the hardest exams I've ever done in my life. It was so, so tough. Um, and I, it's a really high pass rate. You should get over 70. Um, and like it was 200 questions to answer in two hours. It was just mayhem. Yeah. 
it's actually your background is quite similar to ours there where we took slight about turns we got to know each other from doing our masters did the exercise nutrition science one in chester and that's how we got to know each other it's also interesting now that there's a bit of a team developing with the amount of people who've come on here and have done the sports performance masters in well, or like really advertising for them at this stage <laughs> <laughs> i know like i mean to be fair like even the caliber of lecturers you know down there like they're They've been there donkey's years. They have so, so much experience. Um, and they're all so sound. Like, you could contact them now. Like, I'm gone nearly eight years now. And, like, they still remember you. And they're still so helpful. I think, like, one of them is actually going to be my external... Ex- or my Viva transfer for my PhD. Like, you know, Catherine Orange. Just pure sound out. Like, you just couldn't meet nicer. Yeah, she had a few years at Munster and all like that, didn't she? Yeah, like, she's class. And that brings on into your PhD research. So you're doing that through WIT. How, what stage yet? Well, I suppose you're getting somewhere near your transfer viva if you're just bringing that up. Yeah. Um, well, I should have that done a good while now, to be honest. But a um, few little obstacles got in my way. Uh, so I think first year round, there was a piece of equipment that needed to be replaced and it took a year. So that literally knocked a year off. Then I went to Canada teaching for a semester. And that knocked another five or six months off but I, I wrote a systematic review over there so it wasn't so bad and then COVID so I've been a year pretty much without collecting data um, but my my area is I'm looking at energy availability um, and REDS I suppose it's kind of commonly known as now and initially I started off investigating whether it's prevalent in endurance athletes males in particular and if it is prevalent what associations are there so What's the hormonal effect? What's the effect on bone? What's the effect on the heart? What's the effect on metabolism? So I was looking at assessing them pre-season, in-season and then off-season. And off-season is probably an odd one. But the reason I was looking at off-season is because I wanted to see how long it would take for... Like it's normal for cortisol to be high during the competition season. But I wanted to see, would it come down? Would it, would it come back to, to baseline? And similar with testosterone, would it come back to baseline? Because it's probably going to be a little bit lower due to the stress and the load that the body's been placed under. Um, so my initial study was to, as I said, assess over three time points. Um, I had about 20 athletes lined up. And I ended up only collecting, I'd say, half of the data that I needed to because like that just just with COVID we just couldn't get back in and because there was no races I couldn't get any competition data so even if they were like doing their own training I couldn't really consider it you know race and season um so I kind of had to put a, a halt to that and I decided to change route and this is why my my transfer viva has taken so long <laughs> because I decided to move over to GA instead um because I was like you know what I've access to 30 40, 50 on any given time of the season, um, elite male athletes. I was already collect. I already have the data collected. I just wasn't putting the papers together. Um, now it's going to be what I call, we'd call field-based data. So in other words, like I'm using, instead of using a DEXA, I'm using skin, skin folds, um, you know, but look at the same time, I suppose it's going to have a better practical application because who's going to send a team of 40 down to get DEXA scans, you know, uh, Douglas bag methods, you know, where you're putting the putting the, the bag over the head, you know, to assess RMR and stuff like that. Um, it's probably more real world the way I'm doing it now. And it's just, it's far quicker as well. Um, so that's that's the kind of route I'm taking. I'm looking at pre-season and in-season. Um, I initially wasn't going to look at hormones because I just, I, I had to collect blood and all that. And going to be a bit of an issue but um my husband is doing his phd in monitoring load and readiness to train and stuff like that so he's after finding this apparatus that you can use to test saliva like immediately so i'm kind of he hasn't fully agreed to it yet but i'm kind of piggybacking on that um so i'm kind of hoping that he will allow me to use the apparatus when uh the off season comes especially so i can see if the if the levels drop um or increase depending on what i'm doing so yeah it's been i'm hoping to have it done by all done written up and everything by next year so I, i'm aiming for the very same hopefully we'll finish at the same time yeah a few things to unpack there you said reds that's relative energy deficiency in sport could you just give us a little explainer on that, please? Yeah, so essentially what I'm trying to investigate is, I suppose initially what we thought was 
we should only be focusing on energy in versus energy out. Okay, so really what we were looking at is whole day energy expenditure. So how do you use your calories versus how many calories you take in? But what then, I suppose, especially with the female athlete triad where, you know, the menstrual cycle was getting interrupted, bone was starting to get a bit weaker in females. What they actually discovered was, was it was this energy in versus energy out wasn't really the problem. What the problem was, was that how much calories have you left over for your basic functioning when you finish your exercise bout. So what we now know is that locomotion or exercise or movement takes priority over everything else in the body. So if you're an athlete and you're burning loads of calories through exercise, well, your body's not going to just stop running or stop lifting weights or, you know, what it will do is it will take calories from other areas. So for example, it will essentially start slowly closing down the reproductive system because it's thinking, do you know what? You can't even look after yourself. I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow you to create another human. Um, it will take from the bone because basically what your body is saying is I'm built to survive. You don't need really, really strong bone for, for survival. You can lie in bed and still survive. Um, and, and you're prioritizing this exercise. So essentially, in a nutshell, it just looks at have you enough calories left over when you finished exercising for basic body functions? This would have become very topical in females over the last few years and that period tends to go away. That, that's amenorrhea, is it? Yeah, yeah. Same thing, they notice a lot of issues with bone mineral density and stress fractures, everything like that. Uh, there was a quite a good video, I came around last year sometime with Mary Kane, a runner over in the Oregon Project. I was showing to six years a few weeks ago, just around how her coaches were so insistent that she lo- lose weight, lose weight, consistently under-eating. It was, of course, over two years, ended up with five different stress fractures in her lower body. Oh, jeez. I lost her period for up to three months at a time, maybe get it back once and then lose it for the same period again. And as she said herself, the biggest issue was her mood went down, but also by mile, her performance completely dropped. The most talented high school athlete in America at the time and never progressed at all college-wise. But you're looking then more so in males than females. Is it because it's possibly not as highlighted that, like it's really obvious if a female is struggling there because you know, period disappears. Whereas in males, it's not as obvious and can sometimes be kind of like, oh, I'm really retired. I just need to, need to man up a bit. Like, oh yeah. Kind of where you're coming from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And exactly that. So like, it is really obvious. Like if, if, if a female's menstrual cycle is interrupted for three or more, you know, cycles, then, oh yeah, okay, you have amenorrhea. Okay, yeah, let's look at this. Um, with males, it's not as easy. It's not as easy to, to notice it. And like, I suppose anecdotally, you see why this was kind of triggered was like athlete cyclists, for example, were falling off the bike and they were ending up getting these breaks that were lifelong career enders, you know, and it was kind of going, but how, how have this group of athletes have such bad bone density? And they put it down to not doing enough, you know, weight bearing exercise and, you know, not doing enough, you know, weights or, or plyometrics or not having their feet on the ground enough. But then it starts to become apparent in long distance runners. And again, they were saying, well, you don't hit the ground as hard as you would if you were a sprinter, you know, if you're a long distance runner. So, if, you know, so the, the, the generation of force isn't as great. But again, is there something else we could look at here? So I suppose the seminal research was done um, in 2000 and maybe 14 is when it kind of kicked off. And initially it was all in kind of aesthetic athletes. So endurance athletes, which is what I kicked off with. But like, I'll be honest, the data that I'm after pulling from last season alone, um, and even when I was looking at just nutritional knowledge or just nutritional intake papers in the GAA, like I think team sports are going to be in a little bit more trouble than what they expected. But because of the fact that they do, you know, weights and plyometrics and explosive type work, they might get away with it a little bit. But at the same time, the calories are not there. Their calories are not there just because your bones aren't being damaged doesn't mean the damage hasn't been done in other systems. You know? Yeah, because was it Luke O'Brien had out last year, the year before, how two intercounty Gaelic football teams were way under consuming carbohydrate. I had, um, and Damien did a very similar project for our uh, masters around like just intake and knowledge around it, and it just wasn't where it needs to be at all. And um, while probably getting some form of protective effect just from running around the pitch and doing the weights, it is likely to just catch up on them at some stage. Have you found it though more prevalent in endurance athletes, or is it just likely to be more prevalent because there's possibly a greater energy expenditure in general or with the training load to some GA players now it's probably not far off the same 
Um, yeah, like the training loads that GA are under now at the moment is close to professional in some aspects. Um, as well as that, what I have definitely seen a trend in is, and, and it's been published in a couple of papers where it's been suggested, was it might not actually be calories. There, there could be more of an emphasis placed on carbohydrate availability, exactly what you suggested in Luke O'Brien's paper. Um, and which was funny, the, the initial data that I, that I um, analyzed for the endurance athletes, they weren't that low. Like some of them were on the cusp um, of low energy availability, but they might have been between 20 and 30. And if it's lower than 30, you know, you're, you're, you're heading into danger zone. But they were kind of between the, the 20 and 30. Uh, there was one guy that was quite low. Um, but in the GAA, the, the figure is coming out at about 78% of them are have low energy availability. And there is a direct correlation between that and carbohydrates. Like, and, and, and like that Luke's paper, like supports that on average, they're taking in between maybe three and four grams per, per kg. And that doesn't matter if it's pre-season or in season, because, you know, they've been looking at, um, oh, there was another paper, I can't think of who it was now, but there was another paper looking at, you know, competition and looking at five days. So two days before competition, the day of the match, and then two days after. And even though we're all harping on about carb loading and how it's important for, for athletes, it's not really translating. Um, so even though the recommendations are up to close to eight, you know, between five and eight, like you could you could say, depending on the on the position, the carbs I think are the one that's the driver, and that that's that's my opinion. But it's also you know after being supported in some research along the way as well. And is some of that restriction potentially there because? not public health messaging but the mixed messaging around people who try and say it's for public health it sounds like oh you need to be leaner we need to reduce our carbohydrates living and even more and more people pushing the low carb or carb free diets is that having both an effect on as you saw from luke's paper that like the high speed run towards the end of the game went way down but now in the longer term just general health benefits or not benefits impacts Impacts, yeah. And you know what? I do think for, for team sports, particularly in GA, because it's really like like Dublin have set the set the tone for, for professionalism, like 100%. Um, and they've got set standards and, and, you know, the whole lot. But I think that there's too much emphasis on body fat in some, in some ways. And like, you know, I've been asked from time to time to take body fat. And my question is, why? Are they not performing? Oh, they're looking a little bit out of shape, but are they performing? Because then, like, it's so easy to, especially with Gaelic football, you know, you have to be robust and you have to be able to take a tackle and you have to be able to take a shoulder. Um, And for some guys, they need that little bit more body fat to be a little bit more robust. Um, And I think that that has fed into a negative culture in some ways. I also think that, you know, I don't know, like a lot of teams are only getting nutritionists in on a kind of a full-time capacity now. And even less so, like we got in a, a we're going to have to get in a psychologist this year, but like you could probably count on your two hands the number of teams who have a psychologist, you know, heavily involved. And I think the mental health side of things and, you know, even like, especially with males, they're like, they won't get an eating disorder. They won't get, they won't get disordered eating because they're, they're men. No, that's a woman thing. But they get, they do, you know, and it, it's That's what Lewis is, like you probably know Lewis from WIT doing it and jockeys. And again, there's probably quite an impact of just a long-term calorie restriction that's leading to a lot of that as well. Yeah. And even like, I saw a paper come out recently that, just like that uh, Larkin Daly in Athlone, how looking at markers of recovery after games and the strongest relationship or association was between lower body fat with quicker times to recover. But you need to understand a bit more around that as well. Say, oh, we need to get our players leaner so they recover faster. It's more so like a proxy measure for just being in better shape. But also, I think what's really important to remember around reducing body fat is the rate of change or how quickly you drop body fat. Like I was with a team a few years ago. They all got dexed. One lad went from 12 to 9% over two and a half, three month period. And he was so happy with himself. The manager was like, oh, this is brilliant. I was like, this is a bit quick. He just, his performance was terrible for the rest of the season. Kept picking up little niggles. He always said, I just keep feeling so tired. Whereas a few other lads who maybe went from 14 to 13, while nowhere near as lean, but because the rate of change was so much slower and more gradual, like their performance just continued to to track up from there. So I think it's it's important to have like a nod 
to body fat but understanding there's ranges and they're very very individual but also what i think is really important is how quickly you change from one to the other and how that fluctuates throughout the season yeah and i think if you are going down the route of changing someone's body composition and it's for sport like if it's not an aesthetic you know sport for example if it's a team-based sport you have to monitor their, their performance closely and even like subjective markers you know how they're feeling their energy levels their moods you know, it can have an awful psychological effect if you're struggling to, to get to a standard that you don't even know. Like, sometimes I'm wondering, like, what is the standard and who set it? <laughs> like, um, and everyone's different and everyone's unique. As I said, I've seen players who play better when they're maybe at that 13, 14%, you know, and played dreadful if they were down at 9%. And, you like, performance, that's what we forget about. This is the thing, the, the, the goal, the core and sometimes we just focus too much on, on the spokes that come out of it, you know? Um, that's why us guys have to keep it real, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose it, it, because that's such a, like a big area, how have you found communicating to, say, a coach or uh, a manager that, that this is actually something that it's not linear, it's not, you know, imp- uh, performance doesn't improve just because body fat go down. Uh, like, how, how have you managed or what kind of experience do you have with maybe changing someone's mindset with that? Because um, I do know for, for me that that's definitely a big struggle. It's a big obstacle that I, that I come across pretty regularly. But how have you found it? Yeah, I, I have to say um, I have been very, very lucky with the management team that I'm working with. Um, the nutrition and that side of stuff is is my baby to look after and like I but I do know and like that yourself you said you, you you had some experience too like I do know some of my colleagues and peers have had negative experiences and have met a lot of resistance and as a result then maybe players don't buy into the culture you're trying to adopt um I'll be honest with you I, I think you you know you have to pick your battles as well you know and there's there's certain things like I know initially when I started working with the tip lads, I was like, these are an elite team. They will only eat elite food <laughs> and didn't work. You know, the lads are like, well, I'm not going to eat the post-match meal if it's only chicken and pasta. I'm sick of eating chicken and pasta, um, you know, and I've probably gone against the grain a little bit where I've been ringing up hotels, booking meals and they're like, sorry, you want a roast? I'm like, yeah, the lads, the lads will eat a roast. And they're like, who are you ringing on behalf of again? I'm like the temporary footballers. She's like, you want gravy? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so I have to say, I, I'm probably the wrong person to ask in terms of like, you know, approaching the manager and stuff. Um, anytime that there has been a question mark over some players' body composition, um, the manager has been really, really approachable. And, you know, sometimes like I can say to him listen um yeah he could do it losing a few pounds but he's got a game in three weeks time and I really don't think that this is the right time to do it and because it could affect his performance and I'm really lucky that David Power is a performance and a a player-centered coach to be quite honest um you know so now look next season this well this coming season could show up a little bit differently when you know we've got higher targets to try and reach um but I think like at, at the moment I I can't really I can't really give you much else um for that question as I said I've just been so lucky I've noticed before that the manager and the caterer insist on a roast dinner if it was a Sunday game and the players like we actually hate roast we don't want it at all and that was a big (laughs) battle but then the manager was also insistent on not letting them drink tea in the hour before the game was like you do know most of them are having like caffeine tablets or pre-workouts which is probably caffeine oh no that that tea will sit in their stomach we're banning that (laughs) lads I've heard them them, them, like I've actually heard the craziest thing so uh, one of my students was uh, an intern with uh, a hurling team and he was like to me one day can I ask you a question and I said yeah and he said so would you like let the lads have cream in in their soup before a match and I was like well no like I mean just because it could run through them you know and really looking for trouble then and he was like but what would you do if there was and I was like well I kind of say to them listen lads if you've any tummy issues I wouldn't really you know just eat your dinner instead and so he was like well I'm the team that I'm working with he said the nutritionist absolutely freaked out when there was cream in the soup he said so he made the team do sprints to try and get rid of the cream um i was like to make them sick was it and he was like no no he just said that it would help burn off the fat and the cream i said doing sprints i was like 
anaerobic exercise to burn off fat. Okay, and the players probably hate him. <laughs> so, like, I'm sure the coach wasn't too happy either with doing these like maximal sprints uh, beforehand. But like, and that was only I think the last year. So I, I'm shocked that nutritionist has that much power over a team to be allowed yeah. to do sprints at a certain time. Like, how would you oh, get into like, this role, lads? I wouldn't tell the players to walk walk quicker. Never mind, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's funny things like, and, and look, different nutritionists have different way of doing things. I know nutritionists that don't like, wouldn't be happy with say the lads drinking my wadi after training or a match. But like, for me, I'm like, well, hydration, if they, I don't really care if they drink my wadi or water, as long as they're hydrated, I'm okay with that, you know? And uh, look, everyone has the reasons for doing things, but you kind of have to work with the team as well. That's mainly tip. You said you're involved a bit with Waterford as well, is it? Yeah, so I've just taken up the role with the Waterford ladies football. Um, now it's it's remote, so I'm doing most of the stuff online um, through Zoom. I'll go down for a couple of just testing sessions for body composition and, and working with the players one-to-one um, outside of that. So it was something I was kind of on the fence, would I, wouldn't I? Um, but because it's remote... Um, it, it's just a little bit easier for me. I'd only have to go down maybe two or three times during the year. They can't bring me to matches or anything like that either, so it's okay. Do you ever be in a situation where you're slightly concerned about, you know, because different counties are even doing little bits of club teams around, like, conflict of interest and that? Because, I know, Damien there benefited from it during the week with me having an awful conflict of interest with two teams in one county. But sometimes, like, oh, these are a senior team, but these are an intermediate, but they're in the same county. So is it all right? Or am I, like, could it be stealing yeah. secrets from one given to the other? Or because they're different competitions, is it all right? If, like, I wouldn't have taken up the role now with like the, the, I wouldn't have taken up a role with another male football team put it that way um, and I did say to David first before I took on the role and he had no problem with it so um, I would be I'd be very transparent about it you know um, and as I said like it was quite clear from the outset that the tip lads were they're my priority like you know in terms of I don't mean that in it, but as in like physically um, I'm at th- three training sessions a week um game like depending on covid numbers i'll be there at the games um whereas with with waterford it was a little bit more distant uh so that's that's the only reason i was able to take it on so yeah i suppose and we're just kind of looking to get a little bit of background on what kind of lectures you oversee at the moment and um just maybe what got you into into these uh these areas did you just fall into them were you pushed into them or did you have to uh fight people on the street to get into into some of them um okay so when i started teaching in lit um i was just kind of thrown into some modules so because previous lecturers had their modules um now in saying that i teach exercise physiology which i love and i have that all the time because everyone else hates it so you know, I was kind of cornered, but it was a kind of a welcomed, you know, um, module for me. Plus, it's kind of safe in a way because I kind of know I'll probably have it every year because no one else wants it. So, um, but I love teaching that. The sports nutrition, Michael Fenley actually taught that for the first couple of years. And he's a little bit bigger than me. So the fight, I might have won the fight yet. Um, but as time went on, then I kind of started to merge into the sports nutrition uh, side of things. Michael kind of went more into kind of coaching and fitness stuff. Um, and he actually has a degree in business. So the kind of businessy side of things, he was quite good at teaching as well. Um, so yeah, at the moment I'm teaching in the applied strength and conditioning course. Um, so I teach first to fourth years. Um, I've taught lots of different modules at different times, but my main ones, as I said, are nutrition and exercise physiology. Um, I'm also course director on, we do, we have a certificate and we have a master's in health and wellbeing in the workplace. Um, so that was something that kind of came by surprise. We said we put in for funding for a short course and the interest was phenomenal. So we then developed it into, again, we said, you know what, we'll throw in for a bit of funding. We'll see, can we get a level nine? We got that. And I think we have a waiting list of, I think it's 300 people for next year. So it's uh, like we do it in-house. We're doing it in-house from next year, but we do it online as well. So it's flexible learning course. Um so that's kind of the space that I'm teaching in uh, at the moment. And yeah, I've taught, as I said, other different modules, like I taught monitoring and, and whatever thing is called monitoring. 
monitoring load and something else or something like that anyway um but it was something I had to kind of learn on the fly it wasn't something that I was really 100% comfortable but I learned a lot um and it kind of helps me to understand like you know where the SNC is coming from where the sports scientists are coming from a little bit more um but yeah that's kind of that's kind of the main areas that I that I've been teaching in and how kind of how I got into them I suppose and do you find um I suppose from the nutrition side of it that it's it's an area that that students are very much uh, interested in like that it 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 really draws their attention um or is it something that some kind of go with the flow with like it's something I have to do and that's it's just part of the course yeah I I definitely have found that every year that I've taught it I've probably had about three or four students that you just know they're going to go ahead and go into that line of of work and that's kind of what they're, they're going to use the strength and conditioning course as a sort of a sounding board you know and move on from there then there's probably like the middle of the road people who are like Do you know what i like food i'm interested in nutrition a bit it's not that hard and i'll kind of just like that go with the flow and then you've just some people who are you know maybe one or two in the class who just have no interest so you kind of just don't take that personally and you just look they they came to do strength and conditioning so not everyone is going to be into into nutrition but you're always going to have a couple that are now where we do have uh, we've had every year now nearly one or two students who think that because they've done a five credit module in nutrition that they are a nutritionist um and that's taxing um so because like you know everyone wants to know why am I doing this module and you're like but do you ask that when you're doing do you think you're a psychologist when you finish five credits of psychology you know do you think you're an accountant when you finish five credits of basic spreadsheet stuff whatever they do in accountancy you know (laughs) um so like I like I had a student this year and he basically told me that he didn't see the need to do a course in nutrition because he kind of knew it all and he thinks that he'd get a lot of experience um, and learn from other people he doesn't need a qualification he thinks they were overrated all right <laughs> yeah you, you've, you've kind of beat me to uh, my next question there which is going to be like how do you I suppose approach that with students I suppose making it like abundantly clear that you're you're learning the basics of nutrition here that so that you could possibly um you know support uh, 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 an individual or an athlete afterwards but not so that you can go out and be a nutritionist uh, i suppose it's a I, I guess it sounds like i'm kind of protecting um my my own work in some ways but um it's a contentious enough area where you you uh, you're regularly met with misinformation and and you start piecing back where this is, uh, stuff comes from a lot of it comes from people who just don't have an actual qualification or education in nutrition or an in-depth uh, education there so yeah like what kind of steps do you take um to try and get that message across i guess yeah yeah no I, and i think that's a really good question and you know what if, if you'd asked me that maybe last year or the year before i probably would have just given you some rambly answer but what we've actually done because we've seen it and like it's not only happening with nutrition like in in like strength and conditioning is is broad you know um so what we actually did was we we changed the course so we did a massive overhaul and and try and avoid that from happening what we actually did was we changed the course from being only five credits of nutrition to 15 credits of nutrition and then we also put in place where they can do a nutrition specific work placement you know where they work uh, i'd be their supervisor um and then they can do their fyp where it's more nutrition specific And what we've also done is we've highlighted the pathways. So like if they want to go do um, uh, their master's, we'll say, in GMIT, well, they need to have 15 credits done of basic nutrition. So that's kind of what we're telling them so that they can see what the progression actually is instead of thinking, well, this is the module I'm after doing, so I have to be qualified. We're kind of saying, look, this is where this is your starting point, your undergraduate, um, you know, starting point. And then you can move on to your master's. And the other thing that we've done as well is instead of just giving out to them we've we've actually written um we have a undergraduate course ready to go so we um in lit we have developed a suite of courses that we're going to be um establishing year after year after year as opposed to all in the one go 
and one of them is at the end of it so you you will be a sport and exercise nutritionist um that that will be affiliated with the afn and center um so what we've essentially done is every everyone is common first year and then in second year then you start to um go into your kind of your chosen or your specified area so we started off with the overhaul of the applied strength and conditioning uh, September gone um, we've uh, the masters kicking off now September coming and then we're looking then at, at as I said rolling out the the new the, the, the suite of courses then and we're merging with AIT as well which is a really really exciting um, thing that's happening in September too so lots of lots of really exciting things coming from from that space but I suppose what we're trying to do is instead of hammering a message home to the students you can't do this you can't do this what we're trying to do is well, look, we, we're great. We're really delighted that you want to go into this area of nutrition, but let's like let us help you get there. And we're trying to establish pathways so that they're not just wobbling off at the end going, yeah, I know everything. Um, so that's we kind of just thought we, we go for a more proactive approach. <clears throat> that's brilliant. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that just because it, it there there's so much confusion and there's so much kind of. I suppose I, I won't allow it. It's nonsense, I suppose, but opinion based. Uh, uh, I suppose ju- I feel like a lot of people either because they eat food think that therefore they ha- they basically are covered from a, a nutrition perspective, or they've they they believe in something, or they've heard something from some athlete somewhere in the world has done something, and therefore will apply it to everyone. And uh, yeah, so it it it's great to great to kind of see that. I suppose approach uh, happening at the moment, um, yeah, because it's it it is it is a worrying area to be honest. I mean, it's definitely keeping me busy, that that's for sure. <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, no, that that's fantastic. Um, and are there any areas I suppose uh, that you feel you'd still like to develop um, in 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 that line in the courses, or uh, do you feel like you've really kind of uh, nailed? your approach at the, uh, at, uh, at the moment uh, from a nutrition perspective? I think for now that, that we, we, are, we are on the right track, but I think you'll agree that this industry is so like ever-changing um, and it's, it's always evolving. So, and I think that's the reason why like in colleges that they have a five-year cycle for, for most courses where you do update them then after the end of the five years. So I think for now, this is the probably best approach to take we are also in an uncertain environment um, where like we need to see what we look like when we are actually merged with AIT and, and you know, really focus on our strengths and, and see where that takes us, you know, and because like with anything, you have a you have a panel of staff at the moment, but in, in, in a year or even two years, you can see a massive change in, in the clientele or in the personnel that, that you're dealing with. So you kind of have to you kind of have to wait and see. Um, so we, we won't run before we can even crawl or walk at this stage. We'll, we'll kind of see how this goes and then work from there. That's a really interesting idea about the, the kind of the general first year and then you branch off. It's similar to like doing general engineering and then going to civil, electronic, whatever like that. Are you looking to do kind of replicate something similar? And will that end up, can you do that in either LIT, like say the, the traditional LIT base and Torless or an Athlone or will it, will it be kind of confined to one? I'll be honest, I don't know. That's that's the, the answer I can give you. And I do think that that's probably why they decided to roll out the Masters in September because that can happen whatever way it looks. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll probably, you know, have a look. We have these courses developed. They're already written. Um, and, and let's see what's best for, you know, for the demographic of students that we're trying to attract on, on both campuses. And as well as that, like, well, we nearly have three or four campuses to, to, to work off because we have Athlone, then we've got Thurlis, which is a really strong um, campus in LIT. And then, you know, you're looking at the, the Limerick side of things as well. So we'll just wait and see what it looks like. But LIT through their business courses, that's the approach and the structure that they would take. Business with, you know, so that's the kind of the business with model is, is I suppose, what, what we were kind of aiming for. And it's very successful in, in that area. So there's no reason why it shouldn't be successful um, in the area of kind of exercise and, and sport. And it's important as well, because like it's not generally done in silos. Like even you as a nutritionist, you probably work with the S&C coach a bit to, you know, to chat things up. We actually had Robbie on about a month ago. Um, or the same, you know, you're chatting to the manager, you might be chatting to the skills coach. So it's good even if someone is going into that role that they have an understanding of, well, I'm here as a nutritionist, but I get how a lot of the exercise stuff works. So it helps me as a nutritionist inform whatever we're doing or whatever they're doing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Even communication. Like so many students graduate and they actually don't really, 
they, do, they don't fully grasp the importance of communication, but they also don't fully grasp working as a team. And just because your idea is not taken on, on board, you know, some people don't take that very well. Their resilience to, you know, resistance or change or being said, you know, told no, um, it's something that does have to be fostered a little bit better. Yeah, and stuff like that as well would probably even just help. You know, sometimes like the slightest thing can cause conflict, like a mix up in terminology or little things like that. And people being clear on, okay, what this term actually means can just clear things up so quickly for so many people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. No, that's all been really good. Something we're trying to do more often now with when we get nutritionists on is to have a few set questions that we run through, a mixture of fun, advice, whatever like that. Um, and we're trying them today, so we'll see how it goes. Some will be quicker if you want to spend a bit more time on any. That's grand. What was your favourite meal as a child? Well, lads, I'll be honest, I was a devil for a pack of snacks. But my favourite meal was lamb chops, lamb cutlets. <laughs> Loved it. Nice. Sheep farmer here is delighted to hear that. <laughs> and I don't really like lamb anymore. I find it really strong. <laughs> Did you overdo it as a child, maybe? I, yeah, I don't know. Or maybe I just went to period. My mother then, like, she's really into saving the animals and stuff, which is great. She was probably ahead of her time. And I think then they kind of, kind of stopped. The lamb stopped. And then when I started eating it again, then I was like, whoa, how did I eat this when I was about four? You know? Um, but yeah, that was something I really remember being like, oh, I love this dinner so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the most common mistake you see people make in regard to nutrition? Mm, uh, restricting. Um, so like I see that people, you know, when people want to be healthy and they want to be good, they restrict things and they torture themselves. So like I would always try and recommend to people instead of like trying to take something out, add something in. Um, so like usually, you know, if people nail their hydration or if they increase their fruit and veg intake or increase their protein intake you probably find that the other stuff will start to fall away a little bit more naturally and it won't feel like it's such a sacrifice so uh, that's one of the things that i notice that people kind of don't do very well you know and they go gung-ho you know hell for leather and then they fall off the wagon and they're like i'm just an all or nothing person (laughs) (laughs) so it's not always the case like uh, what was a novel or unexpected you ch- or sorry a novel or unexpected challenge you faced with an athlete or client and how you overcame it um well Sherlock I suppose we can't avoid the thing that is the pandemic um but I suppose what happened really what was unexpected was the, the numbers being cut and we had fostered an environment where like the nutritionist and we were all there at every game and and the whole lot and you know I kind of looked after all the food side of things weighing in weighing out you know all that sort of stuff and then with covid um coming in and the numbers being restricted you know we ended up having to try and share out some of the responsibilities i didn't get to go to all of the games um and i think you know that the players in particular i think it was it was an unusual thing for them and it was trying to make sure that they were hydrating properly afterwards and that the supplements and you know all that kind of stuff was all laid out the way that the lads like it that you know the way they're used to um, and then you see as well, you're kind of, because of COVID, you're trying to make sure that you have enough stuff there, like reusable bottles, like if they didn't have their own, if they took one slug out of a bottle, you had to bin it. Um, so that for me was an unexpected, like is one thing trying to do all the work yourself, but trying to delegate all of the work, you realize just how much you're doing. And then you're giving people extra work to do on top of the work that they're doing. Like, I don't, our kit man is like, if he is not nominated by the GAA, like, I mean, and I'm sure every team says the same, like, where would we be without the kit men? You know, or, or women, if, if it's a woman, but you know, like, and he took on a huge role. Our, like, liaison's officer took on a huge role when I couldn't attend and, you know, so that was something that I found really difficult. And I was delighted then to be able to go to the Munster final and, and the All-Ireland semi with the boys. Um, it just took pressure off everybody and everyone could enjoy the day a little bit more um, because it was just normal for us. In a, in a time when normal was gone, that, that, was our, that little bit of normality was there for us all. And, you know, I, I felt like I'm, like, I'm like, I like to do it myself. I'm a bit of a control freak. So I was like waiting at home watching things going, oh my God, did they put the right drink out there now? <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was probably the biggest thing over the last while. That's a great point on the kit men. Worth their weight in gold. Oh, oh my god, Mert <laughs> Kendi is our, our lad and he is just phenomenal. 
It was Pat Delaney when I was at Leash there, and even the following year when they won the McDonough Cup, they brought him up to lift the cup with the captain and everything. Totally understand. What's your favourite home cooked meal, or what would you cook for someone if you're trying to impress? <laughs> well, I have to say that I'm actually more of a baker. But, and I, I actually have to say, I'm fairly good at an old fake way. Um, oh. I actually love, even though, like, I think as well when you're a nutritionist, everyone thinks you're going to come out like bloody Nigella, but that's not the case. I'm not a chef. <laughs> I understand what's in the food, but I love making fake ways. Um, and I love like things like I, I have a really nice recipe for like um, don, doner kebabs and it, it's savage. Like it's absolutely savage. Or I love like making homemade taco fries um, that sort of thing where you still have the comfort of the fake way, but you know that it's nutritious as well. And I don't believe in associating guilt, but I just find I enjoy it more because I'm not going to feel, you know, sluggish or sick afterwards. And it's such a nice surprise if you were cooking something for someone and they're like, oh my God, this is a healthy, nutritious taco fries and it tastes savage. Um, so that would be, that would be kind of my, my go-to. I love kind of having that kind of stuff. Um, I love my mother's spaghetti bolognese and my husband makes the best lasagna I've ever had ever. Now, big mistake on his part making it because <laughs> the pressure, you know. Um, but yeah, that would be that would they would be kind of my three things, like a fake away spaghetti bolognese and lasagna. What's your go to meal or snack when you're in a rush? I have to say I'm after probably buying Aldi out of those. Um, I don't know if you've seen the pouches, the Skyer pouches. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Most people listen to this, so it might be lost on a few. It'll be lost oh, on me, but at least you guys can see it. The Skyer pouches. So these are high protein yogurt, 15 grams of protein in a pouch. You don't need a spoon. You can actually drink it like a Capri Sun, basically. Um, but it's like a thicker, it's like a yop. Um, so I think that they are the handiest grab and go things ever. Like, I know we could say energy balls and protein balls and whatever, but if you don't buy them, you have to make them. And even though they are handy, like, don't get me wrong, but that would be, they be my go-to. I usually would have one of them and a banana, um, in the car with me if I was, you know, had to head into campus or anything like that. Um, so they are my, I'm sure I'm after telling everyone now and Aldi will definitely be scarce on them now. <laughs> it's already hard enough. <laughs> That's uh, that's this week's sponsors uh, sorted. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think the brand is Graham's Family. <laughs> What's your top tip for meal prep or bulk cooking? I saw you had the slow cooker out for the LIT Health and Wellbeing series. Would you be using that a good bit? Oh yes, yeah. No, I well, I, I look when I was eating out of a lunchbox all the time. I was a dab hand at the meal prep. Um, but now that we're working from home, uh, I suppose I probably don't do it enough. And I have to actually share the secret that my mother cooks my dinners <laughs> now that I'm working from home. Yeah. So it's a good meal. So, so, so the takeaway tip is get your mom to keep doing the cooking for you. You won't have to bother <laughs> yeah. prepping anything. Yeah, no, um, no. But when I was, um, what I would say about the slow cooker, right? First thing, if you're, if you are cooking chicken. And if you see, if you actually watch the video, you'll, you'll know this, but you might, and you might, you might just see the video. Um, if you're, if you're cooking chicken in it, cook the chicken as a whole breast. Don't, cause even if you're, you're batch cooking, you might want to cook maybe five or six breasts, you know, for the week or whatever it is. If you cook, cut them up small or into, you know, if you dice them or slice them, it's going to start flaking and falling away. And like, that's not probably going to be the most palatable by the, you know, by, by the time you've reheated it or whatever. So my first tip is to cook your chicken breasts whole. My second tip is don't add the vegetables. I Like we're all like love the idea of the slow cooker because you can throw the food into it in the morning and then it's done when you get home that evening. But a lot of complaints that people have is that the veg can become quite soggy. So what I would say is, yeah, yeah, okay. Use your slow cooker to your advantage, but just make sure it's ac you're actually going to eat the food that's in it. So don't add the vegetables until the last hour. And they'll stay, they'll, they'll kind of retain their crunchiness and cut them slightly bigger if you can. The other thing I would say about the, the batch cooking and stuff is don't do it for the whole week if you possibly can. Only do maybe two or three days at a time because it gives you a lot more to work with. There's not too many food types or products that will last five, five or six days after being prepared. So, you know, try your best to maybe allocate a Sunday and a Wednesday 
you know, give or take. Um, so try and maybe do it maybe twice a week if you possibly can. To give us a little tip there for slow cooker recipes, a big giant of ham and a bottle of Coke Zero. Cook it in that. Oh, that, that sounds nice now. Uh, do you have a nutrition pet, fee, pet peeve or a myth that drives you mad when you hear it? Um, oh, I suppose the whole idea around carbs, like they're after getting, and creatine. The creatine one actually probably bothers me the most. I think it's the most misunderstood supplement nutrient substance whatever you want to call it um first of all people think that first of all they think they'll damage your kidneys then they think that if you take it you're going to end up like the michelin man and like neither are actually true (laughs) you know like i would often ask my students you know hands up who takes creatine and show of hands and, and why do you take it to get bigger okay uh, what, and what do you do? Do you go to the gym or not? <laughs> so I de- definitely think that my pet peeve is that people like assume things without without fact. Um, and I kind of like to describe creatine as an overdraft where, you know, you've got this storage of energy in your muscle and creatine essentially works like a, an overdraft where you can tap in to get a couple of extra reps or a couple of extra sprints. And that helps you to get faster or to get stronger or to get bigger. Um, but you have to do the work as well. And, and I suppose, you know, even the thing around water weight and, and stuff like that, that, that creatine can, can end up, you know, causing. It's about knowing how to, how to use it and, and how to supplement with it. So that's kind of my, that would be my pet peeve um, where I think, you know, supplements can, can be misunderstood big time. We, we were actually doing uh, supplements in 50 RP for the to leave and start end of it. And I'll just talk about, here are some of the different supplements. Here's ones that have good science behind them all that. And one girl's like, sir, does creatine work? Yeah, but like, I know it's not banned, sir, but can we like can we get a petition going to try and get it banned? Because it has to be illegal. I, I don't know where she was getting this from. No, she was convinced it was steroid. Steroid, like. like in its yeah. Uh, tea or coffee? Okay. If I'm at home, I drink tea. And I'm a very systematic person. And if I'm out, I'll drink coffee. And mainly because lads, I'm not paying two fifty for a cup of tea. No way. I'm not doing it in a, in a cafe or, or a restaurant or whatever. Um, I will always drink a cup of coffee in the morning. But um, as a rule, I'm, I'd be a tea drinker at home. And as I said, yeah, I love, I love a little cappuccino out and about. What advice would you give to someone who would like to work in nutrition? My advice would be to like be willing to do some unpaid work to get experience at first because it's a really, really hard industry to get in. But once you're in and once you do a good job, like you'd be really surprised to see the work really flowing in. Um, the other side, the other thing I would just definitely advise is like just accept that it's not it's not that glamorous. Um, and you, you really do have to love it. Um, but it, like I, I, I love it and, and you guys love it, you know, so like love the industry and whatever, but you have to be willing to work hard and you have to be willing to take um, the, the, I know I have to keep saying it, but the non-glamorous side and, you know, just, just dig deep, get in and don't be afraid to ask questions. I think in the sport exercise leisure industry, um, too many people suffer with the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, the one where you think you know it all. Um, and I definitely see it, uh, especially as people just graduate, for example, when, when they should be really open-minded and trying to learn as much as they can from experience and from practical side of things, they think because they've learned a bit in college, for example, that that's it, I know it all now. And like, they can really shoot themselves in the foot. So just be aware that the more you know, the more you don't know. And that's, you know, that's that's the thing that you have to be very aware of if you want to be at the top of your game. Yeah, that's really good. Last one then. One thing you'd recommend that would improve most people's health or performance. It doesn't have to be nutrition related. I can't even believe I'm saying this, but mindfulness. Um, I think like... I do think, and I have, I had to learn this the hard way myself, but I think taking a little bit of time out, like I use the Calm app. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Where- I, actually, I actually did 10 minutes on Calm right before this. <laughs> it's amazing. The, te- the t- 10 minute daily Calm. Like sometimes 
like I, I think we don't stop and slow down enough and then I think everything gets affected because if your brain gets kind of full and you're overthinking like when you go to sleep that's why your thoughts like whiz 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 because it's the only time you actually slow down so if you can clear your mind a little bit during the day and essentially like you're creating space like closing off a few tabs on your computer it'll run a lot smoother um you'll sleep better we know that when we don't sleep right, we probably don't eat right the next day either. We probably don't exercise to, to our potential, you know, if we're doing an exercise session because we're wrecked. Um, so, like, I do think that there's a lot to be said about taking even that 10 minutes um, and just be. Just be. And, it, like, you become so much more productive. And, and like, as I said, if you had asked me this last year, I probably would have come out with some nutrition-based um, piece of advice. But I, I just think that this is probably at the core of a lot of of, of productiveness you know if we allow it to happen that's, that's really good answers there thanks a million um damien or shane have you anything else you want to hop in with no i'm just uh, i want to commend you on the the context uh, that you gave for each one of those questions it was uh, it was fantastic thank you i love talking <laughs> <laughs> i think this is the podcast i've laughed the most you just yeah, been definitely. very entertained it's about very your answers as well. <laughs> yeah. oh god lads if i could i'd love to write a book on some of my experiences with you know throughout my time but like you know i don't know i might get sued or something but i know i wouldn't but you know Keep like should let, yeah oh yeah i could i'd be like um you i don't know if you watch bridgerton no I no I no no never mind it's lost on you guys there's <laughs> girls here they know um no sure look lads i honestly believe if you can't have a laugh at this stage sure god we'd have nothing <laughs> <laughs>